When you think of who throughout the whole history of the church, like all the way back to the ascension of Jesus, who has most extended the realm of the kingdom of heaven during the course of their lifetime? Well, who would you say that is? Think back through church history. Think of the book of Acts. Think of those original apostles. And I think it stands to reason that you and I might be thinking the same name. Paul. So, as we are arriving toward the end of this last, as I call them, slice of knowing Jesus. By the way, we've been at this for something like 41, 42 episodes. Well, should we investigate how he went about it? In fact, if Paul walked right into our reality today, if he sat down between us at a table at a coffee shop, what would he have said to us? You know, I think after many readings of the letters that he wrote over the years, I think he might have said to us, sitting at that coffee shop, what he said to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he said to his friends in Corinth, Copy me, my brothers, as I copy Christ himself. So, what I want to look at today is how, as the perhaps furthest reaching of all apostles ever, well, how did Paul do it? How did he gain his direction? How did he stay encouraged? How did he gain vision? How did he stay anchored in only knowing Jesus and proclaiming his kingdom everywhere? Well, what we're going to do in this episode, I'm going to give you four different visuals, different moments to imagine. I'm going to describe them for you. And these are all from the book of Acts, one after another. And so get comfortable. Let's imagine together. Let's look from different vantage points to see how Paul did it. So, we're going to begin by looking through the eyes of Timothy, that young friend of Paul's. He came from Lystra. We know that he had a believing mother and grandmother. And after having seen Paul come to his town, uh, heal a man, almost be sacrificed to by the high priests of Zeus, uh, then get stoned by some traveling Jews who had come from Iconium, well, on the next time Paul swings through town, Timothy goes with. He delights to be near to Paul. He loves to ask him questions. He loves the way that Paul is so completely fixated on Jesus and on his way. Well, now they're traveling. Many weeks go by. Timothy is beginning to understand the cadence of this life of being on mission. Until interestingly... They are up into what today we might call Western Turkey. And they come near to the borderland, a place called Mysia before Bithynia. And as they take a particular road, Paul would stop, wait, standing there in the hot sunlight. And then he would turn and take a different road, heading south. And then he would come to another instance of the road coming up to that borderland. And again, he would stop, this time longer, listening, waiting, silent. Again, 
to the left, to the south. They travel again for another day or so. And again, they come to this borderland, to this place between districts. And Paul stops in the roadway, waits, listens. Then he turns back, looking at you, Timothy, and his other friend, Silas, and says simply, no, he will not have us go there. So, frankly confused, you follow him as you move down towards the town of Troas. You book a night at the inn there. You have a pleasant conversation over dinner. Paul tries to encourage you to have a glass of wine. You don't. And eventually, the three of you go to bed. You say goodnight to each other as the lantern gets snuffed out, and you fall asleep. In the morning, you wake, and Paul is up. He is dressed. He has an enormous smile upon his face. And his first words to you are, "Ah, to Macedonia. (laughs) And of course, you want to know why. How has he decided this in the last seven hours since you fell asleep? And he tells you that he had gone to sleep talking with Jesus, asking him for that direction that he had sensed he was not receiving in Mysia, Bithynia. And in the night, he awoke to see a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and appealing to him right there in the room and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul says, well, that vision was from Jesus, and so away we go. Friends, that's from Acts 16. So when you wonder about getting direct direction in your life, what to do, what to do today? Uh, What is your destiny, your calling? You must be with Jesus. You must spend more time. You must sit at his feet. And he will make clear. Or let's imagine looking through the eyes of Paul himself. You know, after that vision at Troas, after sailing across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia, you arrive at Philippi. Frankly, only one person believes because of your speaking, which doesn't feel particularly encouraging. Then you cast an evil spirit out of a girl, and for that you're thrown into prison and beaten, where you sing, where an earthquake occurs. Well, next thing you know, it's time to leave, and you go to Thessalonica, where, frankly, a riot starts because of your teachings. Then on to Berea, where things start well, until some of those Thessalonians, who had not particularly appreciated your message, arrive, and they upset everything. So then you go to Athens, where you give a very brilliant sermon, and it's met mostly with, eh, kind of reactions. Then on to Corinth, where after making some friends, you find yourself, well, kicked out of the synagogue. So after all this, how are you feeling? 
perhaps not quite so directly directed as you did that morning in Troas. And so, you're getting ready for bed one night and feeling that pit in your stomach we feel when we feel a little bit listless. You fall asleep. You awake. And in that split second of waking, you sense a presence standing at the side of your bed. At first, it frightens you. In the darkness, you can see only that it is a bearded man. And yet he speaks to you with a voice you recognize. It was that voice you once heard on the road to Damascus. The figure says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and let no one silence you. For I myself am with you, and no man shall lift a finger to harm you. There are many in this city who belong to me. As you fall back asleep, what are you feeling? Well, courage. That sensation of having taken heart, having heart be put into you from the heart of Jesus to yours. Well, years later, after more journeying and danger and good ministry, tough ministry, you arrive in Jerusalem. You go to the temple simply to pray and to worship. And what happens? Well, because of your ministry, because of your reputation among the Gentiles, a riot breaks out. You are actually being carried on the shoulders up above their heads at times by Roman soldiers so that all these people will not tear you limb from limb. At the steps of the barracks of the Roman soldiers, you ask if you may speak and you speak and then the crowd breaks out into a riot again. So, the next day you are taken to stand before the Sanhedrin. This is the same council, not all the same people, but the same place where your Savior was put on trial. Now here you are. And then again, right there in the peacefulness, you would think, of the council chamber, a near religious riot this time breaks out. The Roman colonel has you taken back to the barracks prison. And just as you were feeling in Corinth, after being kicked out of the synagogue, after these years that have gone by, that same sensation comes back. Is all lost? Is it all for naught? What am I doing? Well, again, you fall asleep. Right there on the floor of your cell. And then again you wake. Again you sense that presence. In the darkness he stands, bearded, gazing upon you. The same man. That same look in his eyes, the same voice. As he says to you, Take heart, for as you have witnessed boldly for me in Jerusalem, so you must give your witness to me in Rome. Friends, if we are seeking for vision, for understanding of where he is taking us, even in the midst of our bewilderment, more time with him, 
more time in his presence, more time of the pursuit of abiding in him. Well, now imagine this. Not so terribly many years after that. You are the first mate now on an Alexandrian sailing ship. And you have been tasked with taking a load of prisoners from the eastern Mediterranean to Rome in order for them to stand trial. And, and as you're sailing, all is well for a while. Then as you're passing to the lee side of the Isle of Crete, one of the prisoners approaches and he tells you that God has told him the voyage will end in disaster. <laughs> sure, yeah, that sounds right, since you're a prisoner and I am the first mate of this ship and you don't appear to be a man of the sea, so you ignore him. Well, chaos ensues. <laughs> An enormous, in fact, the largest you've ever seen in all your years on the sea, nor'easter blows down over the tops of the Isle of Crete, blowing you off course, out of control, down toward the Sirtis banks. The size of the storm envelops you to where there's no sense of direction. And on, as you can calculate it, the third night, you look back. You look at the stern. And you see that prisoner from before, sitting, cross-legged, his hands slightly raised, smiling, laughing, as the waves flow over the edge of the boat and slap him in the face, just like they do everyone else. And yet he continues with hands lifted to seemingly speak to himself and to be filled with delight. The next morning, he comes forward and says to you, Sir, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and suffered this damage and loss. However, now I beg you to keep up your spirits, for no one's life is going to be lost, though we will lose the ship. I know this because last night, a messenger of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood by me and said, Have no fear, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And God, as a mark of his favor towards you, has granted you the lives of those who are sailing with you. So, sir, take courage. For I believe God, and I am certain that everything will happen exactly as I have been told. Friends, as you have that image in your brain of Paul sitting in the stern, communing with the living presence of Jesus, what do we take away? That you and I may be at home in him, no matter where we are. More time with him. Friends, where did this intimacy, where did Paul's journey of that heart-to-heart -heart connection begin? How did Paul know that his direct experience of Jesus would lead this way, upon the way? How did he know it? How did Saul of Tarsus, 
a man steeped in human religiosity, become the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest and most radical spiritual leader in the history of humankind. Well, actually, I just gave it away. I named it. Because it began at the beginning. It began when Paul was still Saul. Imagine a man laid out in the dust and dirt of that roadway leading down to Damascus, literally blinded, staring upward with those blind eyes into the darkness. Listen to how Paul describes that moment at his later trial in Acts 26. Who are you, Lord? I said. And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet, for I have shown myself to you for a reason. You are chosen to be my servant and a witness to what you have seen of me today and of other visions of myself, which I will give you. My friends, as we move toward the end of considering what it means to extend the realm of the kingdom of heaven, I want you to hear me very clearly. I do believe that it is subjective experience of the objective truth surrounding Jesus that is going to lead us on, encourage us, grant us vision, and ultimately bring us home. For you and I to have a daily expectation of experience of his presence and the willfulness day by day to not relent is the spirit with which Paul came out of being Saul. I'm telling you that this reality is available to all of us. And I'm also saying this is the only way to spread the actual kingdom of heaven. So my friend, what are you hearing?